Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, the president meets the queen. Trump is about to embark on a state visit to Britain, a nation beset by Brexit bedlam. Then he'll travel to Europe, a divided and politically conflicted continent. We'll preview the trip and the hornet's nest he'll be walking into. Also, 30 years since this haunting photo, 30 years since Chinese troops entered Tiananmen Square and opened fire. 30 years later, how much has changed? How much has stayed the same? Nick Kristoff and Jiang Fang join me. Finally, from the global public square to the extraterrestrial one. My gosh! Are UFOs a real phenomenon? The US government may finally be seeing the light. But first, here's my take. Last week's election results for the European Parliament were mixed, which meant that every side could claim a victory of sorts. Right-wing populists did gain ground, but so did some decidedly left-wing parties like the Greens. The only clear conclusion is that the traditional parties that have dominated the continent's politics since 1945 continued to see their appeal wither and their power wane. But elections are often lagging indicators of social change. By the time the public becomes aware and engaged on a certain issue, the problem might well have passed its peak. Consider the two issues fueling populism in the West, fears about immigrants and a lack of economic opportunity. In both cases, the crisis appears to be over, but the fury remains. The number of migrants coming into the European Union illegally is at the lowest it has been in five years. In 2018, about 115,000 people crossed the Mediterranean to seek entry into Europe, an 89% drop from 2015. This reflects European cooperation with countries in North Africa and the Middle East to strengthen their borders and stimulate economic development, while at the same time getting much stricter on asylum applications. In the United States, the pattern is similar. Mexican immigration, the issue that Donald Trump raged about when he announced his candidacy, has actually been going in the opposite direction for years now. From 2007 to 2016, the number of undocumented Mexicans in the U.S. fell by 1.5 million. And while there has been a recent surge of migrants from Central America, the caravans that Trump rails against, they are generally throwing themselves at the mercy of U.S. authorities at the border and pleading for asylum status, which is only granted to a small percentage. What about the other problem that has been fodder for populism? Joblessness and the stagnation of middle-class wages. 
When Trump was on the campaign trail, he suggested the actual unemployment rate in America might be as high as 42%. He painted a bleak picture of life for the middle class, insecure part-time jobs, wages that never grew, benefits that were disappearing, a portrait still being presented by Bernie Sanders and some other left-wing populists. Well, last week, The Economist pointed out that this picture, so firmly embedded in our minds, does not comport with the facts. Two-thirds of OECD countries have record high employment numbers for their working age population. The U.S. unemployment rate, 3.6%, is at its lowest point in half a century. The Economist writes, as for precariousness in America, the gig economy accounts for only around 1% of jobs. Finally, tight labor markets and minimum wage laws are together moving wages up. Now, none of this suggests that life is easy for people outside of the top tiers of these countries. It isn't. But whenever crises flare up in liberal democratic capitalist countries, there is a tendency to look admiringly at non-democratic or non-capitalist countries. This happened in the 1970s when the West was mired in stagflation and political dysfunction, and many thought the Soviet Union was stable and on the march. In 1975, in fact, the Trilateral Commission issued a famous report titled The Crisis of Democracy. Well, a decade later, stagflation had been licked, the West was booming, and it was the Soviet Union that was beginning to collapse. Open societies often seem weak because their problems are aired publicly and debated loudly. But what gets lost in the din are the myriad responses to these problems bubbling up from markets, civil society, governments. Capitalism and democracy are open and responsive systems, and they are reacting and adjusting to the public's concerns, even while populists continue to peddle little more than deception, despair, and demagoguery. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's keep the conversation going on Europe's election results and what they mean. We will also talk about President Trump's state visit to Britain to see the Queen. His trip starts Monday. Joining me now from the other side of the pond are in London, Anne Applebaum. She is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and a foreign affairs columnist for The Washington Post. In Paris, author and philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy. He has been crisscrossing the continent in recent weeks, performing a play and pressing for a centrist vision of Europe. And in Milan, Beppe Severnini, who writes for Italy's Corriere della Sera, as well as for the New York Times. Uh, and let me start with you. Um, the poem goes, the center cannot, cannot hold. Things fall apart. Anarchy is loosed on the world. Did, did the center hold? What's interesting is the center is not holding, but that doesn't mean that the continent is swinging to the right as many expected. Um, what we saw in the European elections on Sunday was some move to the far right, but also a real resurgence of liberals and greens, um, often new parties um, that have been formed under new conditions, sometimes in reaction to the far right. So we see really a return to big political competitions in Europe and at the European level um, as people begin to take seriously the idea that continental problems like ecology and like immigration can only have continental solutions. These parties are all working together um, across, uh, across national lines. They were sometimes campaigning across national lines. Um, and so the, the, it's, it's a lot more 
complicated than just to say the center is over. Uh, Bernard, what does it mean for, um, for Emmanuel Macron, the great liberal hope of Europe? Um, does he now, is he in a kind of paralyzed holding pattern? Or can he aggressively continue to try to implement the vision that he campaigned on for a renewed France? I think that the result of this election for, is not so bad for Emmanuel Macron. And even it is good. It is good for two reasons. Number one, because the far right did not get the success that they hoped. Of course, they are ahead, but much less than they were hoping, number one. Number two, it is clearer and more and more clear in France that they are not just extreme right, but a little worse. One example, the day of the result, the head of the list of the Marine Le Pen party went on screen of the biggest television in France close to a neo-Nazi, sort of uh, between an activist or a white supremacist or a nostalgic of Nazism on TV. And number three, and which is uh, maybe the more important, in the next European Parliament, Emmanuel Macron will be in the position of the center of a referee. And I can tell you, Farid, I had the chance with Anna Pellbaum and other writers to be hosted for lunch by Emmanuel Macron two days before the election. And he did not look at all as a man who was just stepping out of a, a terrible movement as the yellow jacket, which was not just a social movement, which was something else, with a strong extreme right coloration. And he did not look like a man who is in the back of the ring and waiting for a, for a defeat. He was a very cool, a very Barack Obama-like president, very sure of himself on a good sense and ready to assume and to take the leadership and the flag of the liberal, democratic and humanistic Europe. Beppe, how do we understand Italy? Because one of the things that attracted Steve Bannon to Italy was the idea that in Italy, left-wing populists and right-wing populists have come together. In his fantasy, it is the Sanders vote and the Trump vote that has come together. Uh, has that persisted in this European election? Well, first of all, how do you understand Italy? Uh, it's hard to understand <laughs> Italy. So first of all, good luck. Uh, and Steve Bannon certainly didn't understand Italy. He tried but he tried to understand, but obviously he was ignored in Italy and in most of Europe. What happened in Italy is simple. You have a right-wing sovereignist movement, populist movement, Matteo Salvini and the League, and they went from 17%, the result in the general election last year, to 34%. And it's like in a play because it's perfect. The other, the left-wing populist, the five-star movement, they went the other way around. They went for 34 to 17. So they're not happy. And the government they are forming together is about to fall, I believe, simply because they cannot afford to stay in a coalition where they lose half their support in a year. Uh, of course, Matteo Salvini and the right-wingers are very happy to stay in a coalition where they double their support in one year. So Italy is watching and everything is quieter than has been for some time because we are in Europe and most of it, most Italians know that we and France uh, are 
an exception, but to be an exception is better than to have the similar result all over Europe. We cannot afford to be isolated for too long. We're going to see now with the new budget that Euro will tell us you cannot do what you want. And one way or another, Mr. Salvini will fall in line. Fascinating conversation. I've got to add a point that Anne Appleman made to me privately, which is that the populists also have few ideas. The great idea of the Italian populist Salvini is he wants Italy to have bigger budget deficits. That doesn't strike one as an, as an argument that uh, you know, is going to reshape the world. In any event, don't go away. Next on GPS, the president goes to the palace, Buckingham Palace, that is. We will preview the state visit and the state of British politics when we come back. We are back with Anne Applebaum, Bernard-Henri Levy, and Beppe Serenini. And explain to us, if you can, the chaos of British politics. Is it most likely, as it seems to be the conventional wisdom, that Boris Johnson will be the next prime minister of Britain and he will take Britain uh, into a hard Brexit that is essentially, you know, a complete severing of ties with Europe? Um it's certainly not what the British want. Um, we had a very weird European election here uh, in London last weekend, where, whereby the, the, the traditional parties um, did much worse than the new Brexit party, um, as well as uh, the Liberal Party, which until now had been a, a rather small party. So British politics is going off in all different directions at once. Um, it is possible that the Tory party will want to choose as its leader somebody who will take votes back from this new Brexit party and who will remake the Tory party as a kind of new pro-Brexit, hard Brexit party. Um, the trouble is, if they do that, they will then lose a part of their own constituency and they will then lose much the rest of the country. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's guaranteed that Boris will be the leader. It's probable that it will be a hard Brexit here, um, but that may, be a, that may be really a losing, that may be the end of the Tory party if they do choose that. Um, Bernard, a lot of people say that th there is a, s a solution for, Br for Britain and for Europe uh, where the Europeans can be a little bit more accommodating to uh, the British, but that Macron is, is very hardline. He doesn't want to make more concessions to the Brits. Are we seeing this sort of traditional Anglo-French rivalry at work again? About the Brexit, uh, Farid, if I may just say one word. It is a rare case, what is happening today in UK, a rare case of suicide of a nation. You had in America, birth of a nation. We are facing in the UK, suicide of a nation. Number two, it's a rare case, case of a madness, craziness, uh, oddness on power. If you look at this, Neil Farage, obviously is a crazy man. Boris Johnson obviously has a, a symptom of something. He is not just a rightist or leftist or whatever. There is something else. There is a wind of madness which is blowing on this old Great Britain becoming again little England. And there is a sort of schizophrenia. It is rare in the history of nations. What happens in Italy, in a way, was expectable. Italy, at the end of the day, was one century ago the birthplace of fascism, just one century. There was Berlusconi, who has been uh, working the earth for Salvini for 20 years. But what is happening today in England 
is a sort of coup of madness, a wind of mad madness, world uh, out of, uh, of, of its uh, uh, um, de out of itself, which is very, very odd. Beppe, when you look at Italy, the one thing we do know about Italy is it has always been very pro-American. So I'm wondering, as Trump goes to Britain, um, is he facing a, a, a Europe which has turned anti-Trump or has it turned anti-American? One thing is the government. One thing is the nation. Italy is pro-American and pro-European. And uh, deep down, I do not believe that Salvini really means what he says, that Putin is a better ally and he really wants to switch in Italy from sort of looking west to looking east. I, I don't, honestly don't believe that. And I also, although I, I am not happy about his big success and result, I do not believe that Salvini is a new Mussolini. Never thought of, I know him and I know my fellow Italians. We are too, in the, uh, we don't have enough discipline to become a new fascist, believe me. And uh, we don't want to. And uh, Salvini is playing, is a cheeky demagogue, but he's no budding dictator. Trust me on that. And uh, I think that being a big family like Europe, he'll be brought under control. Thank you all. Fascinating conversation. We will continue to follow the events in Europe with great interest. Next on GPS, Tiananmen Square. Its name means the gate of heavenly peace. But 30 years ago, it saw hellish violence being perpetrated by the government against its people. How much has China changed? How much has it stayed the same? Nicholas Kristof was there 30 years ago. He'll be here with me when we come back. On June 4th, 1989, 30 years ago this week, the Chinese government opened fire on students and democracy activists in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. The next day, the tank man offered a powerful protest even as he was laden down with bags. His real name will probably never be known, but his brave actions will be remembered for ages. He stood in front of a line of tanks more than 20 long and proceeded to play a game of chicken. He climbed atop the lead tank, then back down to the ground. When the tank tried to speed off, he stepped in front again. And then nobody knows what happened to him. To this day, the Chinese government censors all mentions of Tiananmen and photos and videos of the tank man. This segment is almost certain to be censored in China. So what has changed in China and what hasn't in 30 years? Nicholas Kristof was in Tiananmen Square on those fateful days in June 1989. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting. He is now a columnist for The New York Times. Jiang Fan was born in China, was a child at the time of Tiananmen, and moved to the United States at eight. She is now a staff writer for The New Yorker. Welcome both. Nick, what do you remember? What is the most vivid memory you have of that day? You never forget watching a modern army bring in tanks and truckloads of troops and at Tiananmen Square using that to mow down protesters, students and workers. But what I remember uh, particularly strikingly, was not just the savagery of that, but also the heroism. And there were rickshaw drivers who were these guys from the countryside with these tricycle rickshaws, bicycles, pulling a little cart behind them. 
And whenever there was a lull in the firing, there would be these um, broken bodies in front of us between us and the troops. And we all wanted to rescue them, take them to the hospital. But none of us did anything except those rickshaw drivers. And they would drive out toward the troops and pick up these bodies of people who had been injured and put them on the back of the rickshaws and rush them back to the to the to the hospitals and uh, it was a display of courage you know these were guys who they couldn't have given you some fancy definition of democracy but they were ready to die for it um to me the thing that we forget um is not not just what happened at Tiananmen Square but the fact that China at that time was actively debating reform, political reform, all kinds of openings. And that was the context in which Tiananmen took place. Exactly. I mean, I think we do forget um, when we witness the violence of uh, Tiananmen that in the 80s, there was a real flowering. Um, There was a cultural flowering, a literary flowering. There were democracy salons. There were um, lawn salons in which students, intellectuals, even average working people were talking about how uh, China could become, you know, so much better than what it was in the Cultural Revolution and how um, enlightened a place it could be. I mean, politically and culturally, there was a loosening. There was um, there was a space for people to discuss and talk and really imagine a future for China that um, they couldn't have seen, you know, five, ten years before. What the government has been extraordinarily good at, it seems to me, is erasing this history, the aspirations of the people. Um, how does it do it? Well. It was sort of after Tiananmen, there was a period when the government propaganda apparatus actually emphasized what had happened. They showed constant scenes of upheaval. They talked about counter-revolutionary rebellion. And then they understood that this was actually counterproductive. And then it was eliminated as if it had never happened. And you could not mention uh, this. And, you know, on social media, June 4th, 6-4, uh, gets uh, gets uh, wiped out. You, it gets removed from the internet. So people talk about uh, you know May thirty fifth, mm-hmm. things like this. Um, but you know, sure, there's a silence. A lot of people don't know about this. But I saw the same thing in Taiwan, where there was a massacre in the late nineteen forties, R Ba, that nobody could talk about. And then when democracy came. Suddenly there was a flowering and now there's a monument to it. You saw that in South Korea with the Kwangju massacre of 1980. Mm -hmm. Again, nobody could mention it for years and years under the dictatorship. Now there's a a monument to the Kwangju massacre. Someday I want to go back to Beijing and I will see a memorial to those heroic people of 1989. What do you think? When you talk to young Chinese people of your generation, when you go back to China, what do you hear? Unfortunately, um, I very much want to see that monument. Um, when I talk to, especially the post-90s generation, 6-4, to the extent that it even exists for them, seems so abstract. And that speaks to, I think, how effectively the government has excised this episode from uh, Chinese memory. Um, this has, I think, been um, helped out by the fact that, you know, everything's on the Internet and the um, 
the the Chinese government has become increasingly effective at scrubbing out what it does not want to countenance on the internet. Um, and clearly, I mean, history books make no mention of it. And it's become taboo to talk about it. I think what's really heartbreaking, even um, within my family members who are still in China, is that when I mention, um, when I ask them, do they remember anything of of what happened, um, I met with silence. And this cultural amnesia that um, is, I think, very much encouraged by the government is um, almost, you know, single-handedly constructed by the, by the government, um, uh, works on a national level, but it also penetrates individual homes. And um, that, you know, um, filters down to people um, of my generation and those who are younger, who have no living memory of what happened and who are not allowed to study, remember, to um, uh, investigate, you know, this probably the most critical juncture of uh, modern Chinese history. Fascinating. Thank you both. Next on GPS, we'll stay with China and talk about the trade war. When Trump rails against China for a $500 billion trade deficit, he also often follows up by accusing the country of stealing American intellectual property to the tune of $300 billion. That is not a big issue for them, according to American companies. I'll explain when we get back. Now for our What in the World segment. No one is quite sure why the U.S.-China trade deal has, for now at least, collapsed. Before Trump's latest tariff hikes on May 10th, the two sides were reportedly close to a deal. But a major sticking point was intellectual property. IP is one of Trump's top concerns. He fumes that Chinese counterfeiting and other forms of intellectual property theft cost the U.S. $300 billion a year. Now, IP theft is as old as capitalism itself. For instance, in the mid-1800s, an undercover Scottish botanist broke China's tea monopoly by stealing seeds and trade secrets on behalf of the British East India Company. Today, it is China that is stealing IP from the West, relying on everything from invasive inspections to Chinese engineers in Silicon Valley sending back secrets to outright cyber theft. That's why Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, says that when it comes to China, Nothing's more important in the near term than addressing the theft of our intellectual property. But here's the strange part. U.S. firms don't agree. In a recent survey of American companies doing business with China, they ranked IP protection 10th on a list of their top challenges. How can that be? One answer, according to Nick Lardy of the Peterson Institute, is actually judicial reforms in China. In 2014, IP protection was the second most important issue for U.S. companies. But in that year, China created its first specialized courts to handle IP cases, and they do give foreign firms a fair shake. In 2015, foreign plaintiffs brought 63 cases in the Beijing IP court and won 100% of the cases. Still, critics charge, with good reason, that foreign companies are effectively forced to hand over technology because they must form joint ventures with local companies to enter certain sectors. But China has been easing these joint venture requirements. Yukong Huang of the Carnegie Endowment cites data showing that while almost two-thirds of foreign direct investment came through joint ventures in 1997, only a quarter did by 2017. 
Huang argues that China is following the path of Japan and South Korea, which also used to steal Western technology, but began to institute strong IP protections as they developed their own innovative tech industries. The Economist notes that in 2017, Huawei filed more international patents than any other company. Chinese leaders also recognized that inadequate protections were hurting foreign investment into China. What American businesses want from the U.S. government more than anything, according to another survey, is to push for a level playing field in China. Their chief complaints on this score are that local firms get better market access, preferential regulatory enforcement, and government subsidies. All this is far more important to them than joint ventures and IP protection. So technology should be a concern, but a secondary one for U.S. trade negotiators. The real prize, what companies want, and frankly, what Chinese reformers want, is for China to stop propping up its own companies and start allowing fair competition. It's time to give new meaning to the phrase, let a hundred flowers bloom. Up next, the genetic revolution. It will change the way we have babies. It will change our concept of humanity itself. The question is, are we ready for it? That conversation when we come back. Humans have been using genetics for ages, breeding sweeter apples, sturdier tomatoes, and most importantly, ever cuter dogs. But today, thanks to a huge leap in science, we are on the brink of a new genetic revolution. And that revolution will bring with it frightening powers and difficult questions. That is according to my next guest, the author and futurist, Jamie Metzl. His new book is Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. Jamie Metzl, pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Fareed. So the basic message of the book seems to me to be the genetic revolution is coming much faster than we think, and we are going to be able to make human beings. Well, certainly the genetic revolution is coming much faster than we think, and it's going to change a lot of things. The first thing it's going to transform is our health care. Then it's going to change the way we make babies. Then it's going to change the nature of the babies we make. And over time, it's going to alter our, even our evolutionary trajectory as a species. And it's a huge deal. It's coming soon, and we're not ready. So the, the healthcare, I think people understand that we're now right. going to be able to look inside our genes to figure out what are the things that uh, right. cause right. illnesses, perhaps fix them. Yeah. But the, the making babies part is the one that I think is most, seems yeah. most revolutionary. Y- Yuval yeah. Harari talks about how you, you now might have the ability for the first time ever to really change what it means to be a human being and make, you know, much bigger, stronger, smarter human yeah. beings. Is that right? Yeah, well, biology is at play. Our species has evolved by what we call the Darwinian principles of random mutation and natural selection for almost four billion years. And now for the first time ever and forever, starting from now, we are going to have the ability to alter our biology in increasingly significant ways. And it's going to happen in stages, all using technologies that already exist. So the first stage is going to be using IVF and embryo selection, our knowledge of what the, uh, to read the genomes of different people, um, to be able to select from among, let's say it's 15 embryos in average IVF. Then we're very likely going and to- you choose the ones that maybe don't have certain diseases, exactly. but also maybe have blue eyes and, and fair skin or something. I mean, whatever has a genetic foundation will be subject to choice. When you have 15, let's say 15 fertilized eggs, 
as in, as in IVF now, your, your options are limited. But we can also and will be able to use stem cell technology to make tens of thousands of eggs. And because the cost of, of sequencing is moving towards negligibility, so now instead of 15 eggs, you have 10,000. And you sequence all of the cells from those pre-implanted embryos. And then you have a much wider range of choice and you can choose a lot of different things. And then on top of that, there's human gene editing tools. Right now, people are aware of CRISPR, but there are going to be much more effective gene editing tools in the future. And then on top of that, we'll be able to go in and make a relatively small number of edits to these pre-implanted embryos. And you point out there isn't a clear distinction between uh, choices you make for purely therapeutic, kind of therapeutic yeah, right. reasons and for aesthetic ones. So, for example, you wouldn't want your child to grow up to be three foot five. Right. Um, but you could yeah. choose that he should be six foot two. Or she should right. be six foot two. You know, if you ask somebody and you say, how do you feel about these technologies? People tend to say, well, I'm for therapeutic applications, but I'm not for anything that could be considered enhancement. But when you press people on the issues and you use the issue of height, if someone's going to be three feet tall and you say, well, we have an intervention that will make them five feet tall, then people say, well, that, that seems kind of like a healthy thing to do. And if, if somebody is six feet tall and you say, we can make them seven feet tall, people are a little more uncomfortable. But what's the line in the middle? And what could you do with the brain? Is there a way to make people smarter? We are about 10 years away from being able to sequence any cell from any person and to be able to predict with some pretty decent accuracy the genetic component of their IQ. IQ isn't entirely genetic, but it's primarily genetic. And now let's say you have those 15 embryo, fertilized um, eggs, or those 10,000 and you'll be able to rank them based on the highest genetic component of IQ to lowest. And will people make a decision to implant a, an embryo that is likely to lead to a child with a higher IQ? In some places, they will. Will some parents want that? Certainly in some places, they will. So this is a brave new world. And do you yeah. think that something like ethical guidelines will matter because I'm thinking this technology will spread around the world. Yeah, yeah. People in China aren't going to follow any right. ethical guidelines yeah. some council in the United yeah. States puts out. Well, it must be. I mean, this, the core issue of all of this isn't technology. I mean, the technology is revolutionary. The technology is going to advance. But the core issue, the issue at play our issues at play are values and ethics. And certainly we live in a world where there are many cultural differences within societies, between societies. It's a very competitive world, and you can easily see how we could have a type of arms race scenario. But if we don't want to have that, now is the time when we need to be having deep, meaningful conversations about what are the issues, what's at stake, and what are the values that we want to bring, bear, to bring to bear so these technologies can develop in a way at least that optimizes the upside and minimizes any potential harms. Jamie Metzl, pleasure to have you on. My great pleasure. And we'll be back. Last week, Kenya's high court unanimously ruled to uphold laws carried over from the colonial era that criminalized gay sex. 67 other nations around the world also maintain legislation punishing same-sex relations. It brings me to my question. Approximately what fraction of these nations were formerly under British rule? Is it one quarter, a half, two-thirds, or three quarters? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Jim Shudo's The Shadow War, Inside Russia's and China's Secret Operations to Defeat America. 
Jim is, of course, CNN's chief national security correspondent. Shadow War says that Russia and China are waging war against the U.S., but this is not war as we know it, but rather war in the shadows. Cyber war for sure, but also making preparations for conflicts in space and much more. A very interesting, if disturbing, read. And now for the last look. This 2015 video is from just one of hundreds of inexplicable sightings that the U.S. military has catalogued for decades. The military calls them unexplained aerial phenomena, but you probably know them as UFOs or unidentified flying objects. This week, five Navy pilots told the New York Times the objects fly at hypersonic speeds, making turns and stops that a human crew could not perform and modern technology cannot explain. The history of UFOs and the U.S. military goes back decades. There's the now infamous flying disc that crashed near the Army airfield in Roswell, New Mexico. The military later said it was a weather balloon. More recently, the 2004 tic-tac-like object, the USS Nimitz pilots spotted flying erratically. But the American government response has largely been one of secrecy and skepticism, fueling conspiracy theories as investigatory programs are kept secret until years after the fact. Other countries have taken a different tack. Chile has a government body that studies UFOs and reports its findings. France, the first country to release its secret UFO records, has a similar investigative committee. But the U.S. might be rethinking its reticence. The Navy has begun asking pilots to report those unexplained aerial phenomena, hoping to formalize reporting, destigmatizing it for security and safety reasons. I, for one, welcome our new openness. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is C, 65% or 44 of the nations that criminalize same-sex relations were once part of the British colonial empire. Even today, most of these former colonies enforce these anti-LGBTQ laws that are directly based on colonial era legislation. Kenya is one of them. Since 2016, three former British colonies have overruled these penal codes, including most importantly India, one of the first nations where these punitive measures were enacted. Here's hoping it also inspires their reversal elsewhere. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.